Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Good morning, Yuma. This is Life, Death, and the Law, 560 AM KBLU, and happy Halloween. Any of you parents out there that have the, um, should I say, blessing or chore of taking your kids out tonight, be safe, and uh, don't forget to look through your candy. Right, Sean? Oh, yeah. I dig through the candy, take out all the good stuff. Oh, I meant to check safety. Oh, but right. You can do that, too. Um, and uh, just be careful while you're out. Today is a good day because we've got uh, Sean Garner, my partner in the in the studio. We've got Cody Beeson. And then we've got our esteemed guest, Mr. Trevor Umfris, who is currently, what would you say, Trevor, the marketing director of Amberly's Place? And I know you've got like four other titles, but... Uh, which one's your favorite? Just go with the marketing director for Amberley's Place. You know, that's fine. Assistant to the regional manager of Amberley's Place. <laughs> there you go. For all you office lovers out there. But the reason that we, we brought uh, Trevor in was because, if you don't know it, we're going to let you know, uh, this month of October is Domestic Abuse Awareness Month. So we thought it would be a great idea to have in somebody that knows it better than anybody else in our community, and that's Trevor and his organization, Amberley's. And Amberley's isn't the only thing that you do, Trevor. You're you're all over the place in the state of Arizona. You visit uh, Washington, D.C. from time to time to uh, really push agenda agendas that are advantageous for, let's say, women and children that are being abused. But it's not just women and children. It can be anybody, right? But predominantly, it's women and children. Would you argue with that? No, not at all. That's correct. And so, um, yeah, you're you're a busy guy going all over the place and and trying to protect um, those that are that are experiencing domestic abuse. What's a typical day in the life of Trevor Umfris at Amberley's place? Well, my typical day is it starts at three a.m. and ends around like eleven p.m. at night. Wow! To my kids and all my hats I juggle, but I mean at Amberley's place, it's basically nonstop revolving door. You would think we're almost a hotel because. That door doesn't stop opening and closing, unfortunately. Um, Amherst Place has been around for over 25 years nearly. Uh, we average five to seven cases per day. So think about that human community. You know, Roughly 3,000 people walk through our doors annually, begin their journey from victim to survivor to thriver. And we think, oh, well, that doesn't happen in my life. You know, I'm good. That doesn't affect me. Uh, my family has a white picket fence. We're good. We're predominant. We're educated. We don't know anybody that's been victimized. But when you have roughly 75,000 people in Yuma County, who come through our doors since we've opened up, opened up. I guarantee there's someone that you know, maybe without even knowing it, that we've assisted. And our whole purpose is to empower individuals, empower victims of abuse, to have the tools, resources to live a life free of hurt, free of pain, and to be empowered to move forward and to live a normal life. Sean, have you have you done you've done the tour right of Amberley's? Oh yeah, we've we've gone down there and uh, walked through each of the rooms and saw how the process works. It's really amazing how they've compiled all the um, elements of what a victim would have to go through into one area that is a very friendly, inviting area. You know, considering the circumstances, so they don't have to go to the police station. So they don't have to go and meet with a separate detectives in another location. So they don't have to go to a separate shelter. It's all centrally located to minimize the additional trauma on the victim. And you guys also have um, agreements with YRMC as well. So they have special equipment. And there's my understanding, Trevor, that uh, you, you can go through this whole process. From the time that you enter Amberley's place, you're really taken care of and you feel 
this support system. And as I took the tour, I mean, it was emotional as you go through that, that process. And you think of the people that come through there every day, you say five to seven people at least in Yuma County will go through Amberley's uh, facilities a, a day. And so you think of that many people going through there a day and the experiences that they have to go through. And I think, Trevor, you've talked about this before. The hope is that people know that they have a place to go. And I think that's the challenge with what you guys do is that they don't, I think the general public don't know a lot about Amberley's or they think it's for somebody else or maybe it's just for women or it's just for children or I don't know what they think. But the common misconception is that it's, it's um, not for me because I have this issue that's, that's happened to me and nobody can help me. But really Amberley's place is there to help. That's what you guys do every day. And what, what does that help come in the form of? Law enforcement, maybe, if it comes to that, but also support and counseling, going through a process of, of um, emotional distress and uh, getting over those issues and those things that have happened. So uh, as I took that tour, I mean, I, I was emotional by the end of it because at the very end of it, if you have never been to Amberly's place, the actual... Um, the actual facility. It's a beautiful thing. Trevor, you've put it together. You, I think it was your concept, wasn't it, to, to do it in kind of like a circular type path. And the idea behind that was, my understanding was, you're always moving forward. You might have experienced some trauma, but we're here to help you and you're not going backwards, we're going forward. And so from the time you enter Amberly's place physically, you're moved from room to room, and it all has a purpose. You keep moving forward, and you never go backwards. And I think that's a wonderful concept. Well, at the end of that that journey, there are a couple of rooms reserved for those that lo- lose a loved one, you know, like uh, maybe a child. Maybe it was a drowning, or it was some uh, horrific event of abuse that ended in a death of a child, and you've got some counseling rooms there. And that, that's what really grabbed me and made me emotional was thinking of those challenges and I know you have to deal with that every day. And and um, I think your counselors, I mean, those guys are superheroes um, dealing with these issues. These these are really hard things to deal with. And uh, every day they're coming to work, day in, day out. And the, the things they have to deal with and bring home is, uh, I mean, my hat is off to them. And um, I think people would be better off if they knew what Amberly's actually does and the benefit it is to our community to have an Amberley's because Amberley's is kind of unique. Would you agree with that? In the sense that you guys bring in law enforcement and that's not a typical thing in even the nation. So your model is kind of unique and you're, you're setting the, the stage and the example for the rest of the nation when it comes to um, uh, this type of facility or this, fa- this type of uh, organization. Well, not only with law enforcement, but also the mere fact that we have MOUs with the FBI with both tribes, with Marine Base, with YPG. Um, we're one of the first centers in the nation. And to this day, it's a rarity to have a, a center that has a written, signed MOU with tribal communities, with military bases. That's unheard of. We've had that MOU in place signed for 20 plus 30, you know. What's an MOU? A memorandum of understanding basically ensures that we will follow best practices, that you agree, here are the best practices right here. You agree to these practices. You will follow these practices to ensure the victim is not re-traumatized, as you mentioned, going from place to place to place or being re-questioned. And they all agree to this form. So by having these memorandums of understanding and they're signed, it's basically a binding contract that we continue to re-update as things improve, as things change. And we were, I mean, working with FBI, we, ha- we work with Border Patrol. We work with uh, 
we're the first installment in the United States to have an MOU with the Mexican consulate. So if someone comes across the border, they've been victimized. Uh, we work border patrol. They bring them to us. We assist them. We don't care about their status. We contact the consulate. Then they work with them with U visa, T visas. I mean, what we have going on in Yuma, yes, we're a rural. Yes, we're just Yuma County. But truly, um, we're, we're the gold star standard, not only for Arizona, but for the nation, for what we're doing. I've had the privilege of traveling to Texas, to Kansas, Oklahoma, and they want, hey, how can you help us change our centers that are child-based to a family advocacy center-based where they assist all victims? And then how do you collaborate with all these law enforcement? Because that's, that's, that's also rare. We all put away our titles or badges. We don't care who, who gets the glory. The focus point is the victim itself. And having you know, 15, 20 agencies of law enforcement and federal work together and not be like, wait, this is my domain, this is my case. No, hey, can you please help me, Adam? Hey, Sean, I need help on this. And we're there to collaborate in collaboration and partnership. It's a beautiful thing. It's truly amazing. But how do you do that? I mean, you have Texas, Oklahoma, you have people from all over the nation saying, how do you collaborate with law enforcement agencies and put away your ego? How do you get them to put away their ego and come to the table to collaborate to help this victim get through the process? How do we do it here in Yuma? It comes down. What's the magic? It's the people, but also... Uh, by us being a nonprofit base, we start off by being Switzerland. We're a neutral sandbox. We're nonprofit. So because we're that, hey, this is best practice. We need to follow these. This is proven guide to be best practice. We need to follow this. Well, I don't agree with that. Well, I'm sorry, but until you agree to it, you can't come play in the sandbox. And that's, that's how it is. We don't charge any agency to use our, our services. We don't charge the victims for our services. All we say is if you want to be part of us, agree to best practice to reduce the trauma and in doing so, it's going to empower the victim to be a survivor and a thriver. And that's why, as you mentioned, when you walk in our center, not only emotionally are you moving forward, you're putting away the, the victimization, then you're becoming a survivor, but also physically you're moving forward. It's a dual part. And that truly empowers that individual, which is the reason why we have that concept. That yes, you came in broken. Yes, this was thrusted upon you, but you didn't choose to be a victim. Now we're going to help you be a survivor and thrive in life. Because people think, oh, well, They've been victimized. They're broken. No. Or males aren't victims. That's false. One in seven men will be a victim of domestic violence. One in seven men. Wow. I mean, we're four men right here in this room. One in seven, think about that, will be a victim. Oh, no, men can't be victims of sexual assault. Also a false statement. Oh, men can't be victims of this. There's these constant false statements going on where um, we're trying to break those barriers. That's why you see us on Billboard's advertisement breaking down the stigma that I know it's not rainbows, candy, uh, candy corn and cotton candy topics talking about domestic violence, sexual assault, uh, child abuse. But it happens every day in our community. It's not increasing. It's just people are not, now more aware that there are services provided for individuals at, at a family advocacy center and that we're here to assist them and that nobody chose to be a victim. If they need assistance, that please call law enforcement, call Aaron Blaze Place, and we'll gladly assist you 24-7, 365. Um, you won't get an answer machine. We always answer the phone. We always respond on scene even Christmas, holidays, it doesn't matter. We're always here to assist that individual. And so, that's what makes us so unique. I, that raises a couple questions for me. You say that the numbers haven't risen recently, um, but did they rise during the COVID lockdown era? Did, were there more cases of domestic violence during that period? It seems like there was a lot more, you know, families were at home. And so then the tension could rise between them and, and parents could lose their temper and abuse their kids. Maybe that's just something that happened at my house. But <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I think to clarify, I'm not try, what I was trying to say is abuse has to increase. 
reporting's increased. And yes, during COVID, across the entire nation, in, in Yuma County and the state of Arizona, domestic violence skyrocketed, sexual assault skyrocketed. I mean, tenfold across the entire state of Arizona, we quadrupled our numbers of victims for sexual assault in Arizona. Wow. One year. And also domestic violence skyrocketed because nonstop, no one was looking out for the children. There were no teachers, no classrooms, no schools, uh, no club sports, nothing was going on. So there were no mandate reporters to look out for those children. In return, you had these individuals who lost their security, their income, their vices, whether that be the gym, playing golf, recreational, uh, interacting with theaters, they lost that outlet, it was gone. So now they're bottled up, confined in a, pro in a home, and what's the release? Unfortunately, it became violence, and it was, it was epic. And we had law enforcement nonstop, that's all they're doing, responding to calls to DV, responding to calls, responding to calls, which is unfortunate, because that's the most dangerous call law enforcement can respond to. And that's why when they respond, it's a minimum too deep, because they know there's no telling what's gonna happen that moment when they respond, and yet they're trained they're wearing their vest and they have a gun, yet they're still, they know this is life or death when they respond to those phone calls. Yeah, and it talks to the breadth of what you have to deal with there at Amberley's Place because um, the domestic calls that they go out on, sometimes it's the victims that, that attack the officers because when, they, uh, when the officers go in and arrest the perpetrator, the victim has a close tie and a relationship with that perpetrator, and so they see the officer then as the aggressor. And... I'm, I'm saying this from, you know, third-person experience, just hearing it and reading reports on it, but you probably see that on a daily basis where you not only have to provide a safe place for the victim to be, but also a safe place for your employees to be. Correct. That's, I mean, our building is very key on security, on ensuring that we have those barriers in store in case something does happen, in case there's an active shooter situation and so forth, because that's, that's the reality that we live in, and you're right. When an individual calls for law enforcement for assistance, they're in the mode of, you know, fight or flight, death. So they call law enforcement. And then once that individual is arrested, they realize, wait, that's my income. Wait, that's the mother, the father of my children. Wait, what's, and they start freaking out then because they're not sure, well, how do I pay for my bills? How do I do this? How do I do, all these things start overwhelming. Like, I don't want to press charges. I don't want to do this. Well, it's, it's too late. We've, we've visually seen this. And by law, we cannot just walk away when we visually see someone attacking the others. Mm -hmm. And it does cause for those conflicts. People think, oh, well, it's simple. Just leave the abuser. It's not that easy. And also, a lot of times when we think of domestic violence, we think of only physical abuse. It's not emotional abuse. Uh, there's sexual abuse. There's, there's, there's five different forms of this abuse, which is very overwhelming. And sadly, normally, it takes seven to ten times for that person to be victimized for domestic violence before they, they're empowered to leave. And that's the scary part. Once they're empowered to leave, that's when it becomes life or death. That's when normally it turns into a homicide or attempted homicide because the person now knows, I lost control, I lost power. Well, if I can't have you, nobody can have you then. Mm. And then it becomes the homicides that we see. Wow. We gotta go to break. This is Life, Death, and the Law, 560 AM, KBLU. We'll be right back. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this.
Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back, Yuma. This is Life, Death, and the Law, 560 AM KBLU. And again, happy Halloween. We hope it's a safe one for you tonight. Be safe as you go out with your kids. And we have Sean Garner in the studio. We've got Cody Beeson running the board. And then we've got our esteemed guest, Mr. Trevor Umphress from Amberley's Place. Um, Trevor, you're the marketing director, along with other things. I mean, you've got so many titles, but that's that's a big one for you. And it, it takes a lot of your time to do that because you're out in the community trying to really educate all of us as to what Amberlees is capable of and what it does on a daily basis, which is, in my opinion, miraculous. To take a victim, help them understand what's happened to them, register that, and move them through a process of growth and uh, recovery and b- to becoming a survivor, not looking back, just keep moving forward, and going through the process of maybe sometimes using law enforcement, sometimes using the hospital to document uh, specific trauma and things that have happened. Um, that is just incredible, and I think the community needs to know more about it so it can be used to its full full extent. You mentioned before in the last segment that uh, you guys are seeing about five to seven victims a day on average, and that, uh, Sean, you asked the question, well, during COVID, did you see an uptick? And you, you uh, Trevor, you said absolutely you did. During the COVID lockdown pandemic, you saw a huge uptick, not only here in Yuma, but all over the state. And I, I'm, I'm willing to bet that was the, the statistic all over the nation with domestic abuse cases. In the last segment, you brought up this issue of um, uh, mandatory reporter, reporters. And uh, if you're not familiar with that term, under the laws of Arizona, and most states have laws like this, there are mandatory reporting requirements. So if, if, for example, my son or my daughter goes to school and they mention, oh, my dad uh, pushed me down the stairs or something like that, to the teacher, the teacher now, under the state laws of Arizona, is they have to report what they were told to higher-ups, and those higher-ups will then probably go to law enforcement or to CPS in some capacity, and I'm going to get a knock at my door. So there are certain people that are in positions that are obligated to report if they hear something from a child, or it, I guess it doesn't have to be a child necessarily, right? I imagine a counselor probably would have, you know more than I do, Trevor, about this, but maybe a counselor in a counseling session with a, with a, a spouse that's being abused, they probably have mandatory reporting requirements or no? So on, on the mandatory reporting requirements, basically anybody who's in care of children, coaches, okay. teachers, church leaders. I mean, basically it comes down to, it's a very wide blanket of everybody. And if you fail to report directly, it's not, oh, 
I'm going to tell my boss, then my boss tells it. No, it's you yourself must make that report yourself. If you do not, it's a class six felony, which means, well, if you have a felony, you can't be a teacher. You have a felony, you can't own a weapon. You can't vote. So it's it's pretty profound, the, the felony, because you basically use through your life away for failure to be a voice for those in need. And simple. Only if someone discloses, it's who, what, when, and where. And that's it. We don't want you to, well, tell me in detail. No, that's not what we're asking you to do. Just who, what, when, and where. You call and make that report. Who do you call? That's contacting uh, Child Protective Services, okay. uh, CPS, and law enforcement. So I asked the question earlier. Both. You have to call both. It's, it's, well, it's, it's. Usually it's, it's child protective services, but if it, it depends upon the, the, the escalation of the case where I'm being sexually abused, I make the, I'll make the call directly to law enforcement. Hey, this kid is just close to me. They're being sexually abused. This is the who, what, when, and where. Okay. What is your name? Here's my name. Where are you at? I'm here. Okay, we'll be right there, sir. Boom. And it's not like, I, I think the people that are under these rules of mandatory reporting, it's not like they don't know. I think, for example, teachers are trained in this. They know that they need to do what what you're talking about. Um, most people do. I think where it gets into a little gray area is the ecclesiastical side. And Trevor, you and I have gone back and forth on this a little bit. We, we attend the same church. And in our church, so this really comes down to confidentiality in general so as attorneys it's, it's, it's the priest petitioner exception to a lot of disclosure and confidentiality requirements as attorneys we have something and you probably see this in the new not in the news but on the movies and things like that you have something called attorney client privilege attorney client privilege means that if you tell me something and i can I hear this all the time when people come into my office they'll, they'll ask me you can't say anything about this right and i'll, I'll say yeah that's true and then they'll bleh, they'll just spit it all out because that's true. I, I cannot disclose what they've told me. There are ways around that. If they invite somebody into the room with them, they've broken that attorney-client privilege. So there are different ways that people can break it. But the general rule is when you come into my office or Sean's office, you sit down with us, we can't talk. I can't go home and, and talk to my wife at dinner and my kids at dinner about, can you believe what this person said today and how dumb they are or how awesome they are? I can't say anything about it. And uh, so that's how we live our lives. We have a lot of, I wouldn't, secret is a, is a, it sounds more derogatory than it is. A lot of conf, um, confidential information that we just bury deep and we keep to ourselves. Right, Sean? Well, yeah. And quite honestly, you, you get trained for that in law school and uh, then you practice it and you're currently in practice of it. So for individuals that are placed in a position of trust, uh, that becomes a way of life. And it doesn't, for me, feel like a burden. In fact, it feels like a privilege that I can be the sounding board for all information and ideas, regardless of how ridiculous they may sound, and, and without the person feeling like they're going to be judged as they speak. And that's the whole purpose of it. So they can speak freely with somebody that is going to only look after their interests and without any fear of reprisal based on the concepts, ideas, or facts that they're disclosing. Yeah. So for example, somebody might come into me, it's a married couple, let's say, I'm not saying this has happened. This isn't true, like true to life, but this is, this is a scenario that could happen. A married couple comes into us. And as you guys know, we do trust planning and, and estate planning every day for families here in Yuma. That's, that's what we do. We're really good at it. And so this happens all the time where a couple will come in and um, we'll talk to them and, and it might be something where one of the spouses is uncomfortable. I can see that they're uncomfortable. Maybe it's about talking about the joint finances or why they haven't joined finances or something like that. And so I might ask one of those spouses to leave the room and then I'm going to get them one-on-one. -on -one. 
And when I get them one-on-one, now we're down to privilege because you can have privilege between that person so long as, you know, it's not uh, conflicting. And I might get a spouse tell me things that he wouldn't or she wouldn't say in front of the other spouse as it pertains to what we're doing legally for their estate plan and and reasons why they might want to do something or not want to do something. And they just don't feel comfortable sharing that in that particular that relationship. So this happens all the time in our office. And I think Sean is right. I don't see it as a burden. It's not like I feel this weight on my shoulders because I have this information. Like he said, I feel privileged to have it. And you, you, you become accustomed to that lifestyle where you just have to, you, you come up with ways to skirt direct questioning about things. Like, uh, my wife might ask me a question that pertains to something that a client said or a particular client that we have that she might know. And I have ways to get around that, you know, and, and to, uh, be Switzerland, like you mentioned before, Trevor. So we're talking about privilege, privilege, information and confidential information and keeping that safe. And what he's talking about is the opposite, the requirement to disclose. And I think it's a very important requirement because think about it. If you're walking along the street and you see some grown man beating up on a kid, you can walk right past. If you do, you are a credent of an individual, right? (laughs) That's that's your opinion. There might be other facts involved. That's the reality. There's no excuse for that. Trevor says no. He's not. He's like, Adam, you're a a horrible person. You have a duty. Maybe that kid deserved it. Intervene, (laughs) right? And if you don't intervene, then... That you are you are failing as an individual. Your integrity has been broken because we all have a responsibility to look out for each other and especially the most vulnerable in our community. And so that's what Trevor's talking about, right? The 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 you, requirement but you say that you say that, that as an absolute a position of trust. It is an absolute. It is not an absolute. That's an absolute according to Sean Garner, but where do you that is not the law. The law is not, we used to have good Samaritan laws, but those have long been overturned. So what I understand, what I think you're saying is as a good moral person that fears God and and, uh, loves God and loves his family, that's the standpoint that you're coming from. But not everybody comes from that standpoint. So it's not an absolute that we should be helping everybody. So what is, let's get to a point where we can agree on what is the law? for reporting, and then what is the moral standard, and then Adam can discuss what confidential requirements could actually prevent an individual from reporting. So the law itself is you must make the report. The report itself must be made to Department of Child Safety, which is formerly known as CPS. So the entire nation calls it Child Protective Services, Arizona revamped things, we call it the Department of Child Safety. Thou shalt, if you disclose something and you are a mandated reporter, thou shall call DCS make that report. Otherwise, right. you can be charged with a class six felony by law enforcement, the county attorney, for failure to report. Um, and it can and, be. And, and, and it's honestly sad that we have to have those laws. Correct. You have to follow up with your moral obligation as a person that's placed in a position of trust to make sure the individuals that you are helping don't continue to remain in, in a, an abusive situation. Um, so. To me, and I haven't been trained in this because I, I'm not a teacher and I don't participate in activities where there's vulnerable individuals. I suppose as, as an attorney, I have vulnerable adults. So if, if you flip it a little bit to that perspective, I do have a responsibility and I have reported to APS from time to time. I deal Right now I've got three or four cases dealing with APS where I believe that my clients are vulnerable and uh, 
there's been abuse there. Financial typically is the abuse that takes place. But, adult, and that's adult protective ad, services. Yes, adult protective services. And um, again, I don't look at it like, okay, let's go back to the rule book. Um, what do I have to do? And so I don't get in trouble. Am I going to get charged or lose my license? It's measuring myself on a level of a moral standard. And if I can leave the office and feel good about that, I'm pretty confident that I'm going to be safe within the confines of the law. Correct. So how does this come into play when we talk about ecclesiastical leaders? So I mentioned before, you and I attend the same church, Trevor, and uh, we've gone back and forth on this concept. And I, I don't even have a stance necessarily. I just like to play devil's advocate, as you can tell. Yeah, you're doing a good job. Thank you. I think by the end of this show, people are going to think that I'm a horrible person and I hate children. That's not the case. I just want to punch holes in what you're bringing up. And that's good. It's called freedom of speech. We talk about that all the time. We want ideas to be tested, right? Absolutely. And sometimes the idea doesn't even fully get explored or formulated until you say it out loud and you've tested it from, from different angles. Yeah, and to be honest, like as I'm talking to you and I'm trying to poke holes in your argument, Sean, I agree with you wholeheartedly is what, with what you're saying. I, uh, and as I'm saying what I'm saying and I'm and questioning you, I'm like, that's stupid. That's stupid questions, but I want to get it out there to test you. So going back to that. Especially for those individuals that are in those positions of trust that maybe the questions that you're putting out there, they're having in the back of their heads. Like, yeah, I use that logic. Well, it's, it's important that we express, we're only putting out those questions uh, for talking points. We don't actually believe that. that, that Hypotheticals. Yeah, hypothetical. Yeah, we don't we don't actually believe that uh, there is a level of confidentiality that allows you to continue to conceal an abusive situation. And that's what I wanted to bring up with Trevor here is uh, let's talk about an ecclesiastical leader. So, a, an ecclesiastical leader in my what I, I guess I would define that as somebody that's in a position of power within a religious or trust. huh or trust. Or trust, that's what I meant. Not power, trust. It would be trust. A position of trust within a religious organization. And if you that are listening, you might attend a church that has um, some sort of system like this where you, if you do something really wrong according to that church's standards or that um, moral code, you might have to go visit with um, a person that is in a position of trust in order to get over those issues that, that, uh, you've been going through, right? And so in that particular regard, if a child was to disclose information to an ecclesiastical leader, I think an ecclesiastical leader typically would look at that from the myopic view of a godly repentance process as opposed to, I need to uh, report this to law enforcement. Um, I think because, in my opinion, and I don't know if this is true or not, but most ecclesiastical leaders are usually lay lay persons they're not working for money a lot of times and so they don't go through this rigorous training that a teacher would that understands the the requirements of mandatory reporting under the law all the time you know i think maybe we're getting better at educating our church leaders but i think um, i would say they're probably far behind the school system in their training um, as far as understanding the mandatory requirements to report and so when you have a ecclesiastical leaders that are in a in a position of trust and confidence, and so they're receiving this information from a minor that uh, abuse is happening. Um, I think, and I've argued with with you 
about this uh, back and forth before, Trevor, over the years. But uh, I think your position is no. They they are just like a school teacher. They're under the mandatory reco- reporting requirements, and if they don't tell law enforcement, then they're in trouble. They they need to be um, held accountable. Would you agree with that? Correct. Yeah. Okay. We've got to take a break. This is 560 AM KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this. you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back, Yuma. This is Life, Death, and the Law, 560 AM, KBLU. I'm in studio with Adam Hanson, Cody Beeson, and Trevor Umfris, who is the marketing director from Amberley's Place. He plays a much bigger role in that. In fact, uh, his family ties go very deep into the roots of Amberley's Place. Um, your mom worked with Amberley's Place, and, and I don't know if she actually participated in the foundation of it or was just involved early on in the foundation of Amberley's Place, but can you tell me a little bit about how you got involved in Amberley's Place and your backstory? So Diane, my mother, she's one of the founding members of Amberley's Place that helped it created. It was Diane, um, Pam Moore, Jeff Philpott, and Rylan Kraut from the sheriff's office. Two detectives from the sheriff's office, and then two individuals who just saw the need to fill a void that was taking place. And we didn't have this family advocate center back in the early 90s. There was no such thing. So if you were victimized, it was you're going to the hospital, you're going here, going there, telling your stories five, six, ten times, being re-victimized, re-traumatized. And because here you said slap, here you said hit, here you said pinch, you changed your verbs, your nouns, it gets dismissed. It's, it weakens the case, actually, by being over-ass. Or the victim becomes numb, and there's no emotion. So, oh, I don't believe them. Right. I'm crying. Well, they're numb because they're being re-traumatized over and over again. Well, and it's probably some little self-defense mechanism in, in your body to, to continue your sanity, that you, you can't yeah. continue that that emotional trauma over and over and remain sane, I would suspect. Sorry to cut you no, off. You're fine, there. but that, yeah, that's true. Uh, so they created the, uh, the Amberley's Place was created, and it's actually named after uh, Amberley Mendoza, who was unfortunately a victim of a uh, sexual assault and who was a homicide victim. Still unsolved case here in Yuma County, and we are hoping that one of these days it will become a solved case. So we honor her memory, so she lives on in a positive form, and then... Amberley's Place was created. Well, I'm 10, 11 years old, so I helped a lot of times with Amberley's Place. Uh, my Eagle Project for my Eagle Scouts was a very large donation of medical supplies 
for Amberley's place, a substantial amount where their entire medical suite was fully funded because of the donations that we got for my Eagle Project. So it was nice knowing I got my, my project taken care of by doing something really good for the community on, on doing that. Because that's always something they struggled with is, is the financial part of that center. And with that... Your mom, she's, she's no longer actively involved in Amberley's place. Correct. Right? She's fully retired, living the life of being retired and being a winter visitor now where she has uh, either Sholo for the summertime or Yuma County for the wintertime. Well, good for her. But tell us a little bit about the legacy that, that she established and, and how that went. So it, it started back 30 years ago. Uh, in the 90s, they started speaking in the mid-90s, around 95, 96. Hey, we need to create this, make this happen. Finally, in 1999, it was created. And then 2001, they did the name change to Amberley's Place in 2001. And since then, uh, Amberley's Place has been basically a lighthouse in the storm, a beacon of hope for all those who've been victimized. And then just recently, uh, a year and a half ago, roughly, almost a, year, a little more than a year and a half ago, uh, she finally... Uh, turn the keys in and, and just retire and pass the mantle on saying it's time for someone else to take this on and, and to run with it. And you've really done a wonderful job of making the community aware, not only that there's an issue, but there is a solution to these, the issue that's out there. The victims know there's an issue, right? It's, it's a lot of us that um, we either turn a blind eye willfully, or we're just naive to the fact that this is going on Correct. to everybody and, and, the statistics are much higher that we want to um, that we want to see and, and, and grasp, and so Amberley's place now is a staple household name, and that's a great thing because we know who we can contribute to when we have some philanthropic um, motives and we want to participate in volunteer opportunities, like you said, your Eagle Project. Um, I also participated in a, a volunteer group where we went and we talked to Amber's Place and we said, we want to help out. We don't know what to do, but what can we do to help? And uh, they had us filling um, containers of, of beans and rice and other staples. And I thought that was a, a little bit different than what was originally going to take place. I didn't know what I was going to do when I went to Amberley's place. Um, but there, there's food supplies also that are provided there. Correct. So it, it's it's the whole gamut. And the fact that people hear this name, Amberley's place, that is a huge positive because they know if you're a victim, you can go there. And if you are somebody that's got good, positive motives and wants to help out the community, you can go there and you can you can contribute. And you should. If you think about what's going to continue on your legacy or what it should be, I can't think of a greater legacy out there than Diane Umfris and 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 the individuals that participated in creating this organization that is now a beacon for the the nation of how things should run and more so for those individual victims. Seventy five thousand. I didn't know the number was that high. That have passed through the process and have had their their traumatization limited because of the volunteers and the individuals that have contributed their life's work to making sure that uh, this problem gets addressed. Yeah, and we offer that training. For those who are unaware, I mean, we go out to schools personally and put on mandate reporting training. And one thing that's amazing about Yuma, it's a team. We have our county attorneys with us. Uh, John Smith goes out with us. We have other attorneys. We have um, Mary McGee from the uh, Department of Child Safety. She comes out with her team. So it's not just our, us talking on behalf of the center. We have law enforcement detectives. We have DCS involved. We have the county training involved. 
So it's a core team that goes out and provides that training. This is what the rules are. This is the law. This is why you should do it. This is why it should be morally correct and ethically correct to do it also. But also here's the law, by the way, in case you missed that part. And this is the rules. And we're the only county in Arizona that does that, that has a team. Everybody else is a one-person show. They show up, they read some stuff, blah, 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 blah. And it's not very interactive. Yet when you actually have a county attorney going out, that's pretty amazing. And we have lawyers and detectives and we have Department of Child Safety people involved. It's very interactive training, very detailed. So when you have those questions, we have experts who can answer those questions. And we also offer those trainings to clergies to make clergies aware of what's going on. And the reason why Adam brings up that law because there's talk about re revoking the law of, 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 of privilege, clergy privilege in other states. And those states who have put forth that law to revoke it, less reports have happened then. It actually re reduces the report because that individual will no longer go see their clergy yeah. for, for assistance or for guidance. The goal for that individual is to guide them. If you want true penance for your actions, you must now make that report. Yeah, right. The steps for repentance are acknowledging that you did something wrong. But it's beyond that. You can't just go to and confess and expect that God is going to forgive you for all the harm that you did or are continuing to do if you don't take any um, acts to to rectify what you've done. And and sometimes that is facing the music, mm -hmm. right? The, the legal consequences of what you've done. If you're not willing to do that, you really haven't repented and, and, and you're still the monster that you went into try to resolve and, and put away. How much um, government red tape and, and oversight do you have to run Amberly's Place? Zero. And that's why it runs so well. Yeah. Because it's a private organization that looks to what really works and what is really the end goal instead of this big public agenda that they want to put out there just to get votes. Correct. And that's why, what's so amazing about what you guys do with your wills and trusts and all that, your living estates, if someone wants to make an everlasting impact, a, a true rippling effect, is think about the, the individual that we serve. If you want to bequeath something to Amory's place, it'll be an honor for us, and we would honor your wishes. That's one of the biggest aspects that's assisted us on doing what we do. Our grants won't cover clothing, underwear, bras, shoes, socks. It won't cover food. Our grants won't cover um, paying for your, your lights, paying for this, which is really weird. Like The core things you need to survive once you leave your provider um, house, medication, food, formula, diapers, all these things, it won't cover. But through the donation of the community, we can ensure they have those resources available and thus we make food boxes. So if someone needs a food box, we have meat, we have the staples, we have rice, we have beans, and here's some rows, here's some ground beef, here's spaghetti stuff. That way they could survive. They could ensure that they have what they need or they need medication, we have this. They need to be relocated, we can pay for relocations. And that's something that without the community support and donations, we cannot offer such services whatsoever. And there's a lot of amazing people out there in the community that have benefited from their hard work and the freedom that this country affords for them to own property and to, to grow wealth. And they want to pass on that legacy. But, you know, they're not a volunteer at a women's and children's shelter, but they want to assist in some way. And what he's saying is you can do that. You can leave a grant. You can leave a... Um, a donation or something in your will or trust that will assist many people from all the hard work that you did and address a problem that is raging in our communities that we like to overlook but is nonetheless real. And I think a lot of people when they come and see us, Sean, 
they want to do something like that, but they feel like, well, maybe I don't have enough to do that. I don't have millions of dollars to give to Amberly's. It doesn't take millions of dollars. It takes a lot of little hundred dollars, thousand dollars, ten thousand dollars in your wills or, or in your trust, and and all those things add up in the aggregate create this this evergreen ability for Amberly's to keep functioning. Like you mentioned, Trevor, you guys don't charge for anything uh, for those services. And that's incredible. And before we go, I just want to address your role in Amberly's place, Adam, you, you serve on the board. Yeah. I was uh, asked to be on the board. What was it? Maybe two years ago, something like that. I think Mm -hmm. Trevor, something like that. Yeah. And, and why do you do that? Um, number one, it's, uh, I considered to be one of the best board, of directors here in, in Yuma. I mean, you, it's got the mayor, it's got uh, law enforcement, it's got the hospital, um, executives. It's so you're rubbing shoulders with the big wigs. Yeah. And it wasn't for that, but I, I knew them. I knew these people outside of just Amberley's just in the community and doing things. And they're good people. They're people that I, I really trust and that, um, I respect. And I thought this would be fun to be with them. Number one, number two, um, to help. I wanted to help in any way that I can. I'm not, I'm not, uh, loaded. I don't have millions of dollars to leave the Amberleys. And I thought this was a good way that I could continue to help and serve. And if they needed some sort of maybe legal work or contracts done, then I would do that, you know, pro bono. That was my, that was my, uh, thought process as I accepted the, the invitation to be on the board. For those listening, I want to leave you with these closing thoughts. Think about if you were told that you had one week left, maybe you had a dream or an angel visited you. And, and so you, you started to take an inventory of your life and your deeds and, and, and how you were going to reconcile with God and whoever that God is for you, that you were going to be held accountable. What would be the biggest amount or the greatest amount of good that you could do with the least amount of resources? I can't think of anything better than, than what you're describing here and what Amberly's Place does. So think about that. If you want to contribute, if you have this burning in your heart to do good, consider Amberly's Place. Yeah, absolutely. We've got to go. Until next time, this is Life, Death, and the Law, 560 AM KBLU. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Deason, Garner & Hanson at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.